This evening's talk is about compassion. And beginning with some words from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. There's an image in Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out, a thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world, and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago, I attended a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. There were about 400 adults and also 30 children there. And the children were off uh, each day uh, having their own retreat. But uh, every morning they would come and do a kind of show and tell uh, for all of the adults before we began our retreat day. So each morning they stood up in front of us and in various ways uh, shared with us what they'd been doing and learning the previous day. One morning all 30 of the children came in to the meditation tent and stood in a long line silently facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both their arms uh, with their hands uh, facing the 400 adults, facing us, wide open, their hands wide open. And in the palm of each each child's hand, an eye was painted. And then one little boy walked up on to the platform where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Tai's hands. And this was their whole presentation that morning. No words, just that. And it was very touching and very inspiring and quite beautiful. <clears throat> So, compassion, karuna in Pali. What is it experientially? Almost 46 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the waking stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. And holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay open-eyed and relaxed and quite contented. My eyes looking deeply into his little face with a kind of wonderment and a curiosity. And suddenly I, I felt my heart tremble and quiver. 
the vibration permeating my chest and my heart center and then moving on through my whole body and into my mind it was a, a feeling, a, a connection an intimacy with him uh, and with life as a force we could say immediately interwoven with these moments was a very deep sense that this tiny being would experience many difficulties in his life difficult situations and many painful bodily and mental experiences within himself a wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally kind of quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty with him that morning and some tears came not the sort of aching tears of sadness that come with feelings of attachment that morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion that yes this is how it is for all of us and for him as well that morning's experience has returned many many times and in many ways as both a teaching and as a practice for me within the enormous gratitude of living life immersed in the Dhamma the Buddha described compassion as the trembling the quivering of the heart in response to pain in response to suffering ours or that of another being compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching it's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free the wing of wisdom of deeply understanding the not self nature of all things and the wing of compassion the heart's connection to beings the heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding a deep knowing of dukkha the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives knowing its cause and knowing the way to its end because our meditation practice has the power to clear away to purify mental obscurations the states of mind that constrict that bind the heart that bind the mind practice actually makes us much more keenly aware of and more sensitive to the suffering in this world how can we bring our deepening sensitivity our new awareness of dukkha into our practice into this path of liberation <coughs> our practice is grounded in concentration mindfulness and investigation 
clear and focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states of body, heart, and mind. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. It also must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance that the heart of metta offers. A mind steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along the way uh, in this training of the heart, of the mind, is very intimately involved with our growing capacity, capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult, to compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in this life. Compassion is a very tender, very open state, and at the same time a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship to whatever's happening within our own body-mind continuum and in relationship to what's going on around us and not feel overwhelmed by it. And so we gently maintain our awareness of suffering. We practice this. Most of us are strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease under the rug, to hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourself away by shutting off or by going to sleep or distracting ourselves, or possibly ignoring or trivializing suffering so that we don't see or don't feel the pain of others in the world, so that we don't see or feel our own pain, our own suffering. And as we've talked about a little bit, our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect and open to the pain, it will touch in too deeply and cause us more discomfort, more anguish, and maybe even unbearable pain. The aim of compassion, karuna practice, is to move towards turning our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance to turn the heart, turn the mind specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourselves or others. And then with understanding and courage, open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering. Through the purification of the heart and mind that practice affords us. Over time we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering, 
but rather begin to feel and to know an unobstructed strength of understanding, an unobstructed strength of care and courage, which is then what gives us the necessary and the wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration, mindful awareness, and investigation, a whole realm of new choices, insights, and responses become available to us. We meet and accept what is which is the essence of mindfulness based in metta. And then in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion or boundless compassion, as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings our self included and in our mind not make others or ourself in any way more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained, true compassion is neither strained nor reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear transform anger, resentment, disappointment, grief, or the expectation that might be present in relationship to another, or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating Again, that, those two words, an immeasurable impartiality, which, in other words, uh, could be described as a fearless, a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitations, as Chogyam Trungpa called it, or described it. Compassion has the power to melt to dissolve the separation between self and other, to dissolve this separation in the direct experience of our body, heart, and mind in an open-hearted and yet an impersonal, non-identified way, non-self-identified way. It's really our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self, me, that perpetuates this painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, this painful duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or our own pain and suffering. 
so that we're honestly and really truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, or jealousy, or greed. I think so often we think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that the most important, helpful, and really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between a reaction and response. Reaction or reaction, if we break the word down, reaction is always based on the past, on past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, or mine. So consequently, they aren't really connected to. They don't really see and don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, and self-identification as this is who I am, this is who you are. Compassion, on the other hand, is a response, not a reaction. There's a story about a Zen master, Ryokan, whose brother had invited him to visit his house and to speak to his delinquent son. And of course, Ryokan went, but uh, he didn't say any words at all of admonishment to the boy while he was there. He stayed overnight, spent time with the family, and prepared to leave early the next morning. And as his wayward nephew was sitting on the ground helping his uncle Ryokan lace up his straw sandals, the boy felt uh, a drop of warm water touch his hand. And glancing up, he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home, and the nephew, soon after this visit, change for the better. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna is really quite challenging, can be quite challenging. It's often difficult. It means that we take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing only, One thing, one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And as we all well know by now, the Buddha wasn't uh, about to go on and tell us the best way to suffer. We're very, all very well practiced in this. We know how to do that. 
And of course, nor was he recommending suffering. He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition. Or more accurately, these states are states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. Wake up and accept the true nature of life. What the Buddha was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence, the truth of the existence of suffering, and that looking directly, deeply and honestly, honestly at the reality of suffering in our own lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it, which in turn leads to a transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. The suffering of grasping on, trying to hold tight to some appearing thing and then solidifying it and identifying it as mine, as me, as who I think I am, be it material objects or ideas or opinions, beliefs, a memory, an emotional state, or a bodily experience. Thinking of any of these things in any way as being permanent and unchanging and identifying any of this as me, mine, and I will inevitably bring confusion and some degree of anguish. Trying to control, cling on to, push away or avoid events or any moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it actually all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, and ungraspable will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it kind of amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that come into awareness, come into our awareness, don't really change very much. You might have begun to notice this. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects. It's how we experience and how we see them and our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something kind of astonishing and fortunate about suffering, about suffering itself. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life, not an absolute. As we begin to see clearly and at least occasionally step aside as we continue to climb the mountain of compassion and wisdom,
and let the heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities hurtle to the bottom. We're less and less often habitually, blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, compassion, mindful awareness, concentration, and wisdom begin to take root and grow. Our heart opens. We're truly beginning to awaken. A friend of mine uh, sent me a letter uh, a while ago, and I wanted to share just a little bit of it with you. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion, where does it come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we experienced uh, another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with, when we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain. The seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you or subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy, like metta. Metta is also a unifying energy. With Karuna, the giver and the receiver are joined. They're not separate when there's any moment of a pure presence with each other. And these moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart. In this case, the particular energy of compassion. 
and plant the seed of this energy in the receiver. And for many of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna within our own heart is then watered and fertilized and it grows. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react, both internally and outwardly to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna in our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be very steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourself asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda, the agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality that we've been living behind, maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the possibility for us to recognize and let go of the habitual knots that bind us which then in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. So looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission and we give the transmission to others and also again to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think for many people, an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment of and transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life and her work that some of you may have seen, there's a short scene where she stops uh, by the bed of a man 
who had just been brought in from the street and who is extremely emaciated and sick. And she gets down uh, very close to him, looking directly into his eyes, and then just simply lays her hand over his heart. And he looks directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it, without pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's says, I can't stand this, I can't, I can't bear to be near it, I can't, I can't bear this feeling. And it's so important when this comes up in the heart, in the mind, to connect to the aversion with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta. Meeting the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is what's appearing in this moment. And this is how it is. It's very important to recognize our limits without self-judgment. However they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed through force. It's appropriate and quite natural to back off from painful experience at times in our life, at times in our practice. Kindness, gentleness with ourself is an important and necessary aspect of our practice. This is Karuna itself. <clears throat> In relationship to this, uh, I'd like to uh, share a, a piece from a book called An Interrupted Life, which is a diary that was written uh, between 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillisom. Eddie was a 27-year-old Dutch Jewish woman who, in the midst of the Second World War, lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam, and then, in quite bad health, uh, lived in the Westerbrook, Westerbrook concentration camp, and then briefly in Auschwitz, uh, where she was exterminated on November 30, 1943. And amazingly, these years of great suffering throughout Europe 
were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and paradoxically enough a time of personal liberation for her. In the midst of this scenario of the extermination that was being played out all over Europe, Eddie, we could say, wrote the counter scenario. And her diary is really quite an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense extreme difficulty. And this is from Eddie, from her diary. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, the sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of the meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view. So that something of God can enter you and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, take pride, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then uh, at another point, Eddie wrote, Mysticism must, must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she wouldn't return from the concentration camp. And she asked a friend to keep her diaries. Somehow she knew that she wanted uh, some trace left behind to share, um, to share the solutions that she had found for her life. And this is from the last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world. To accommodate just a little of the great sorrow, sorrow this wind, coming winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And she ends her diary with, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. Those that survived the camp confirmed that Eddie was a luminous and compassionate, be compassionate being right to the very last. It's so important to stay mindful in the moving away and moving away from and 
coming close to, the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental, physical, and situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give a mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object will also change. We need to learn to befriend ourselves, to come close and to see how it is, see how it really is. It may be a strong and very intense energy, but it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance, metta, with a growing compassion, and see the various colors of the rainbow, so to say, of our experience, see them truly in themselves, and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a very dear friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually uh, give them our attention and we usually give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling and then tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourself, which quite naturally leads to the development and blossoming of a connection with all beings. We come to actually really know that the pain in our heart, the pain in our back, our knee, essentially isn't really different than the pain in the head, the heart, the back, or the knee of any being anywhere in this world. For most of us, our, our hand quite naturally and quite spontaneously reaches out to soothe the ache in our foot or our knee or our back or our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding in this way to the suffering of another? in a quite simple and natural way. Essentially this is due to the deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea, spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall into the range of who we think are mine. And there may be some degree of indifference or even a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of the range of mine.
as our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy blossom. And our sense of being in a closed cell dissolves. It's not that I or me kind of vanish into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, we discover that we're truly and simply a cell that forms a part of, to quote Stephen Batchelor, the interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed. We come to know experientially that I, that the sense of I, the notion of I, that exists, only exists in relationship to you. I, me, isn't wiped out, eliminated. It's transformed. We begin to realize, discover that there is only relationship. I, me, you, them, us have never and will never exist in isolation. Have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notions of me and you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you begin to dissolve with the blossoming of metta and karuna. They begin to dissolve in relationship to the way that we go about our life, how we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally more and more often. We begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. and from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own, and I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy, this relating to others and even to ourselves with the clarity of the pure, compassionate heart. We have many old and seemingly new personal agendas 
we have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there's confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described uh, and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what is classically called the near enemy or what looks like, what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true open-hearted caring presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from a kind of withdrawal if we look really carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle, if, or maybe not so subtle, wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling that I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So pity tinged with a, a kind of arrogance. An arrogance that is a cover, a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or, or the unwholesome component of grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy and can lead one into depression if it's not recognized, if it goes unrecognized, if it's not recognized. One can get caught, get lost in the downward spiral of this strong and deep contraction, which if we see it clearly, we find that it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. And this fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized unhealthy grief. And when we feel pity in ourself for ourself, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of a, an unhealthy grief, in those moments we're really not experiencing any true caring, kindness, or compassion for ourselves, But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling that heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, that poor me with a capital M-E feeling. And as probably all of us know to some degree, in this place there's not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves. So again, with the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful awareness, we can practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body, heart, and mind. 
letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification. Myself as a pitiable, pitiful person. But rather the possibility of here's pity, here's grief. This is what's arising. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, but it's come up. How is it? How is it right now? Mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening. And in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment and in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the uh, first Bearing Witness Retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland uh, in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp during the American Thanksgiving. It was well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman has organized the first Bearing Witness Retreat. As we walk, as we slowly walk through the camp of this first harsh, gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything, it brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the prisoners, the stocked fo shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness as it's a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easy, easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension 
the raw discordance and alienation. Until one afternoon, I find myself alone on my knees in front of an, uh, an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears streaming from my eyes and Om Mane Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, the jewel in the heart of the lotus, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. A deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of connection, dis, excuse me, the depth of dip, disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional ca ca compassion, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion. Every one of us knows at least, and also every one of us knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourself, and the unmitigated alienation and the utter insanity, the untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such a degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, this uh, story or this piece of my diary was put into a newsletter that the Taos Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to uh, share a response that I received from an Israeli student who, had, who has also been quite involved in Israeli-Palestinian peace work. And these are her words. I was deeply touched reading in your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. 
I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while I fell asleep again and had a dream. In my dream the train had to stop and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I only think then, I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I am too terrified to even think about it. From this state of mind I tried to connect with what you experienced. I felt it is very important for me to be able to make such a transi transition. A few days later I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both of his hands. A flag and the book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life, has no meaning for him. I began to cry. Then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion that you were expressing. I could connect to this now. And some words from Vimala Thakkar, the Indian spiritual master who was a longtime student of Krishnamurti. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And these are her words. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer, that what is me is quite separate from the not me, that division among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and the not-self nature of all conditioned things. The other wing being the wing of unconditional compassion. Our heartfelt connection to beings and our way of being in the world 
that ensues from this. This wing of awakening arises primarily out of a clear, deep seeing and knowing of suffering, of dukkha, its root cause and the way of its end. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family, if it wasn't for the wing of compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it so interesting and helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself, his speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. And in one of his discourses, we find him with a small group of bhikkhus, monks, sharing with them what his thoughts were soon after his awakening. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a, such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction, rather than to teaching the dhamma. And he tells his monks that uh, soon after this, uh, a certain Brahmin came to him and pleaded, and this is the Brahman. The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma, let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And the Buddha goes on with his monks, saying, Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world, world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach, and then I replied to the Brahma, out of compassion for beings, open for them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the, the Dhamma, sublime and subtle. 
So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and itself obviously also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and so clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of non-self with the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I think might be helpful in understanding it is this. To know non-self means to know directly and clearly that life is only in the immediate presence of just what is being experienced. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever truly know. And closing the talk this evening with a part, a small part of a book written by a former student of mine. Uh, He never finished writing the book because he uh, died of AIDS-related complications. And these are, this is from his unfinished book. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat. Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go, to go to that retreat. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg goes numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feeding on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all of my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second day, I marvel that I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there was no change. 
By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? Is pra- in practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all of the retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And vipassana is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center. My heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life the suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not held onto. And let's sit for just a couple of moments. <laughs> 